to be in your life, then these, this is how it should look and the way it should manifest itself in some relationships. And so this passage is not very popular today. It is highly debated, and some would be happy if they could completely write it off and remove it from Scripture. And my goal is that hopefully by the time we're done, some of that tension will be released for us, and we'll understand it better. And I really pray, I've been a little stressed this morning because these types of passages get me a little worked up. I pray that I don't misspeak and say something that can be taken wrongly as we look at these highly sensitive issues. And so uh, the part of the problem with being somebody that speaks a lot, you have more opportunities to say things wrong. And so one of my biggest prayers this morning, other than the fact that God controls what is said, is that I don't get in the way and misspeak and say something jumbled up. So that being said, We're going to read verse uh, 18 of Colossians 3 through verse 1 of chapter 4. Here it goes. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of the heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartedly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you too also have a master in heaven. Nothing gets us excited like starting with a command, like wives, submit to your husbands. But before we get caught up in the tension of this, if we aren't already caught up there, I really think the big picture that Paul is communicating is this, that a life centered on Jesus is a life of integrity. If you were to sum up all of these things, I really think that that could summarize what Paul is saying. A life that is centered on Jesus is a life that is permeated with integrity. And so Paul begins to unpack three different relationships and he explains a little bit of what integrity looks like both at home and at work. And so he looks at these three relationships, and all, one of the things that I think is interesting, before you get upset about something Paul says, notice that all three of these instructions and relationships bring a balance that we miss culturally. And, and I would say even the church culture, culture misses this balance. So, that being said, the first one that he says is wives submit to your husbands. And this is that first one that people become offended by. N.T. Wright points this out, though. He says it takes a lot of boldness to argue that the modern model of marriage and family offers a better picture. It's, it takes boldness to argue that the modern world offers a better model for marriage and family than what Paul offers. Think about it. Think about what our world says 
marriage and family and relationships look like. Can you really argue that that's better than what Paul portrays? I think it's also pertinent to note that I think that one of the reasons that this command is so hard for us to accept and so hard for people to stomach is because of Genesis 3.16. Remember in the beginning, Adam and Eve are placed in the garden. They're told not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They eat it anyway. Eve, being tempted by the serpent, eats it. Adam standing by and watches and doesn't intervene. But do you remember the curse that was given to Eve? One is that there would be great pain and childbearing. Women, you can thank Eve for that. But the other thing is, in verse 16 of chapter 3, God says, your desire will be to rule over him, but you won't. Your desire will be to rule over him, but you won't. That's a loose paraphrase. Sorry, that's going to bug me. At least it's easy to find. Verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. See, part of the reason that we struggle with this is it's part of the curse of sin. God says from the beginning, this is going to be your desire, but it's not going to work. And so that naturally creates tension because we try to overrule God's plan. But Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. And I think that there's some relevance here. There are several proverbs that I think are funny. And I think they're funny, and I would say that anybody that laughs at them finds them funny because there is truth to them. For example, Proverbs 25, verse 24, which says this, it is better to live in the corner of an attic, in the corner of the housetop, than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Proverbs 25, 24, it's better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. And there are several Proverbs that repeat that same idea and that same theme. And we laugh at them, or maybe we cringe at them, but I think that they're kind of funny because we recognize that they're true. I am thankful every time I read those that I don't have to worry about that. I am thankful that I don't long for a corner of the attic to go hide because the home life is miserable, because that doesn't exist. But we know, we've seen those people who live with a quarrelsome wife that just wants to argue and nag and nag and nag, and what do they want to do? They want to find a place where they can hide and not have to hear it. Look at this model that Paul presents. He is presenting a model for a happy household. But part of why that command is hard to accept for us is because through the ages, women have been browbeaten with this command while their husbands at the same time ignored the command to them. Husbands, love your wives. 
If you want your wife to submit to the authority that God gives you, live in a way that she desires to submit to that authority. Quite simply, don't be an authoritarian jerk. Now, I think it's important to note that neither of these commands are contingent upon the other. It is not conditional for wives to submit to their husbands only if their husbands love them, and it's not conditional for husbands to love their wives only if their wives submit. Both of those are presented as non-negotiable commands. Husbands have no excuse for being domineering and unloving. Husbands, love your wives. In Ephesians, Paul goes on and he says, love her in the way that Christ loved the church. And so then that raises the question, in what way did Christ love the church? Because I present that question because I had this conversation with an individual one time who was having some marital issues several years ago. And he said, well, I do. I would, I would happily die for her. I just don't want to live with her anymore. But that's not the way Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church selflessly, not just by dying for her, but by living his entire life for her. Go read Matthew 4. Christ could have gotten the throne that he was headed for by giving in to the temptation of Satan. Satan continually offered shortcuts to the throne. But he didn't take those shortcuts because, one, it wouldn't glorify God, and two, it wasn't what was best for the church. If you want to love your wife the way you are called to as a husband, do what is best for her and quit being selfish. You see, N.T. Wright points out again that Paul offers this careful balance because neither party is to be arrogant or domineering. And he goes on to write this, the wife must forego the temptation to rule her husband's life. Read Genesis 3.16. Using perhaps one of the many varieties of domestic blackmail, the husband must ensure that his love for his wife, like Christ's for his people, always puts her interests first. It's selfless. You can't love and be selfish simultaneously. If you want to say that you're loving your wife, quit being selfish. So Paul presents this model, and I have trouble being convinced that there is any model that has ever existed that is a better model than this. Because the the reality is, when a husband loves his wife, there's no reason for there not to be that biblical submission. Because if he is loving her and putting her interests first and doing everything for her benefit, then what's there not to submit to? And if a wife is submissive and loving and respectful and honors her husband, then what's there not to love? Then he moves on to the parent-child relationship, and he says, children, obey your parents. 
And this is one of those where we really see the pendulum swing because we have heard this verse quoted over and over and over and over again. This is one of those verses. It's been used to browbeat children without paying equal attention to the second command that we will look at in a minute. Children, you better do what I say because you have to obey me. Children, obey your parents because it pleases the Lord. Obey, 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 obey. The reality is, though, kids, you are called to obey your parents because it pleases God. And it pleases God, so it displeases him when you don't obey your parents. In Ephesians, Paul points out that this is the first command that carries a promise. Because he says in the Ten Commandments, children, obey your parents, honor your parents, in order that it may go well with you and the land. See, we are blessed when we obey and honor our parents and we face cursing and cursing comes when we are disobedient and dishonor our parents. By the way, everyone in here is a child. All of you have parents. Some of them may not be here any longer, but we, I, I say that to emphasize the fact that none of us are beyond that point of being children of our parents. This is not something that ends at 18. There is always to be that respect and that honor. But the balance comes because Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children. And it's pointed out and it's supported well that that word that's translated fathers in the ESV can refer to both parents, to both parents, both genders. In fact, in Luke 2, 43, when Jesus is missing and his parents are looking for him, do you remember that? He's in the temple, but his parents can't find him. Guess what? Same word as what we have right here. Same word. So this isn't just a command to the fathers. It's a command to both parents. And that word provoke is the word that underlines there and that is the root word carries this idea of causing to have resentment. Causing someone to feel resentment. Which we see in the lives of people we know and maybe in our own lives as we command kids to obey, 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 but we aren't loving them the way that we're called to love them. We've all seen those families where the parents are just as authoritarian as some have been with their wives and they lack that love and all of the emphasis is on verse 20 and they ignore verse 21 and the children grow up to be bitter and resentful and they walk away from any faith that may have been there. Parents, do not provoke your children. Set the example. Now, it has been pointed out that maybe Paul uses this word that often refers to just men but is neutral for both parents because of the important role that fathers play. And so I, I want to take a moment and say that fathers need, and I would say both parents, but I'm going to focus on fathers and you can see where it connects to both. Fathers need to be the man that they want their son to grow up to be. 
Would you be pleased if your son grew up to live and act and treat his wife and his children the way that you treat your wife and your children? Be the man that you want your daughter and your granddaughter to grow up to pursue. Because the reality is, is that's what we see as a pattern typically. It breaks once in a while, but typically... Young men grow up to emulate the behavior of their father, and young women grow up to pursue men who model the behavior of their father. So as you live and as you treat your wife the way you treat her, would you be happy and pleased and satisfied if that's the way your daughter was treated when she gets older? Or maybe the question that you need to ask yourself is, is the restaurant that you take your wife to or that you go to or you take your children to or the magazine that you read or the film company that you watch, would you be pleased to see your daughter or your granddaughter working for them in the future? Would you be happy if she was your server the next time you walked in? We have... A I I don't think there is a higher calling than being a parent and shaping children. And, And that often translates over into spiritual parenthood. Again, I think this is one of those things that's beyond just biological connections. If you read through the letters that Paul wrote to his mentees, he says, he calls them his son in the faith. And so as spiritual parents, we also have that obligation to model what we want people to pursue. Can can you say to your children, whether biological or spiritual, emulate me as I emulate Christ? We get to that third relationship, and this is one where it gets really dicey as well, and that is bond servants obey your masters, or some translations translate that slaves obey your masters. And so people get upset and they say, why didn't Paul just come out and say that slavery was wrong? I honestly think that the reason Paul didn't come out and say slavery is wrong is because that would be about as well accepted as somebody coming into a church today and saying that the American dream is idolatry. Nobody wants to hear it, and nobody's going to listen to it. And they're going to say, that's heresy to say that something that is so ingrained in my culture is wrong. And so Paul goes at it a different way. Because Paul didn't approve of slavery, though it is odd to read Colossians and Philemon, and Philemon where he sends a runaway slave back to his master, And so there are a lot of ways that we could look at this issue of slavery today. And and honestly, we're not going to spend any time unpacking this first century picture of slavery and how it's different from today. That is for a different discussion, a different time that most of us have heard probably if we've spent any time in a church talking about the topic of slavery. But instead, I want to look at the way in which Paul single-handedly undermines and unravels slavery in a way that is more likely to be received. Because, first he tells the servants to obey their masters. 
which we, he actually, did you notice that this is the one where there is the most additional instruction to it? Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of the heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartedly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. At least those first couple sentences there qualify that obedience. Don't do it by way of eye service, only when people are looking at you. Don't do it just to please people. Do it sincerely with fear of God. None of these other commands have that many additional instructions with them. And then he says, see your, op- your work as an opportunity for worship. When I was reading this, I couldn't help but think of a maintenance guy that I met at Carl Hospital in Champaign. I was over there visiting a couple people, and we had stepped out of the room because the nurses had come in to do some stuff. And this maintenance guy started talking about the floor and how much time and pride he took into this floor, making sure that it was great. And the person that was standing there with me also happened to work on floors at his job. And so they begin talking, and he's telling them about this warehouse that he worked at where he polished the concrete, and everybody knew that it was him who was on because the concrete was always beautiful. And I think there's a guy that gets it, that it doesn't matter what your job is. It's an opportunity for worship. He didn't just do it enough to get by and get his paycheck. He did it to the best of his ability, not just to please people. It was an act of worship. Hopefully he was worshiping God and not his work. I I also can't help but think of the parable of the talents Those who are faithful with little will be given much, and those who are not faithful with little won't be given much. Maybe the reason that you don't have more significant things in your mind to do is because you're not being faithful with those things that are seemingly insignificant. And I think that part of that is that we think things are insignificant. There is no work that is insignificant Because part of it is you have an opportunity to be a witness as you do things to that next level because that's not common. But then he tells the masters to treat your bondservants fairly and justly. But consider this in context with verse 16. If you're in chapter 3 still, back up to verse 16. I'm sorry. I typed 16. That's not right. It's verse 11. Apparently, I can't read. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. Now, Paul had just told them that in Christ there is no slavery or freedom, that everybody is equal. And then he tells them, masters, treat your servants fairly and justly because they are your equal. I think he accomplishes more 
doing that to confront this issue of slavery than he would if he were to just come in and say slavery's wrong. We saw what that issue did to our nation. People didn't want to hear it because you're attacking their livelihood. Think about the demonic woman that Jesus heals, but she was making money for her employers. Jesus heals her. They're more mad about the money they lost than this life that is healed. And that's what tends to happen. Money corrupts us. And so we tend to not want to listen to things like slavery is wrong or the way you're going about earning your living is wrong or that the American dream is idolatry. And so in the context of Colossians 3.11, Paul says, treat your servants fairly and justly. Treat them the way they deserve to be treated. Now let's fast forward to the 21st century where things might be different and look at the integrity for us. And I think that it's still relevant to understand that a life centered on Jesus is permeated with integrity. The principle is as true today as it was when Paul wrote this letter to this congregation. And integrity is to permeate every relationship, whether it's the home relationship or the work relationship. There is to be integrity Husbands have integrity, wives have integrity, parents have integrity, children have integrity. When you're working for your boss, have integrity. As an employer, as a supervisor, treat your employees justly and fairly. Because you too have a master in heaven who is going to judge all with impartiality. Quite simply, I think integrity is summarized as do the right thing. What's the right thing? That, doing that is integrity. Whether somebody is looking or not looking. Whether you're being watched or you're by yourself. Do the right thing. Again, it's important to understand that none of these commands are contingent upon the other party fulfilling their role. Parents aren't called to love their children as long as their children obey. They're called to not provoke them and to love them no matter what. Even if it's not reciprocated. When I was in high school, we had to go through the school rule book, not word book, rule book for athletics. And in one of those, it was simply summarized, be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there doing what you're supposed to do. If you want to do the right thing, be where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, doing what you're supposed to do. And you will have integrity. Because if you're supposed to be somewhere, then that rules out places that you ought not be. And things that you ought not do. Or if you think about it from the perspective of the golden rule that Jesus presents in the Sermon on the Mount. Treat others the way you want them to treat you. Do you want your wife to respect you with the love that you show to her? Do you want your parents to love you with the honor and the obedience that you give toward them? Do you want your boss to treat you according to your submission and your effort given to them? Treat them the way you want them to treat you. 
Honestly, I think that Christians should set the example in every relationship. We should strive to outdo each other in doing good, and we should consider others more important than ourselves. And no matter the relationship, we are called to live with integrity, setting an example of faithfulness. And when it comes down to it, the life of the Christian, when it's, whether it's their domestic life or their vocational life, the life of the Christian should be appealing, not appalling. But the problem is, too many times we ignore these things because they don't sound pleasing to us and they don't make us happy. And so our lives are appalling to people rather than appealing. And people are pushed away from Christ rather than drawn into him. The life of the, a life centered on Jesus is to be permeated with integrity. And when we do that, we increase our ability to witness to the world around us.